Shachtan, an Indo Askelige. Time in Mon Irok the Yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Makan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestian Echo. Vien Talam again Omgrev, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. I want for myself an actual caliphate, like as in a Muslim country. Not like a, a group or a, a brutality group. A brutality group. Yeah. Do you accept now that that's what the Islamic State was? Yeah, I think there was a lot of brutality in it, you know. A lot of people will ask how a woman from Dundalk who was a member of the Defence Forces could go on to become an ISIS bride. And while a lot of folks will be on the ISIS part, and rightly so, I think a key aspect of understanding Lisa Smith's motivations is to look at the bride part of her story. What is the radicalised? I'm a Muslim. I believe in one God of all mankind. I believe in a, living in a proper Islamic state, just like the Kurds believe that they need a Kurdistan, just like the Yahud believe that they have Israel, like Americans believe that they should have a president and an America. It's exactly the same thing for me. It's not widely known, but one of the main reasons Lisa Smith went to Dundalk Mosque in the first place was because of a man. She had a Muslim lover who attended the mosque there. A lot of the women at the mosque who, who knew her say it was always about a man with Lisa. She was just one of those people who seemed to need a man by her side. And for her, the more powerful and devout, the better. This woman declined to give us her name, but she's been identified by Irish media as Muslim convert Lisa Smith, a former member of the Irish military. She says she came to Syria an ISIS bride. Now she's a widow, left alone with a two-year-old daughter. I want to go home. But you might be prosecuted if you go home. You might end up in jail. Are you ready for that? Well, I know they'd strip me up my passport and stuff and I wouldn't travel and I'd be watched, kind of. But prisons? I don't know. No. I'm already in prison. Today on the Indo Daily, in a two-part special, we take a look at the story of Lisa Smith from the government jet to ISIS bride. And joining me are Irish independent correspondents Catherine Fegan and Robin Schiller, who've been covering the story from day one. Lisa Smith, the former Irish soldier, has been found guilty of being a member of the terrorist group ISIS. The court said Smith knew full well the techniques and views of those who enforced Sharia law where she wanted to live. It's an unprecedented decision in an Irish court, but the judges said there was no doubt that Lisa Smith was a member of Islamic State. On the charge of financing terrorism, Smith was found not guilty. Mr Justice Tony Hunt said it could not be ruled out that Smith's motivations were either charitable or for humanitarian reasons. Sentencing will not take place until July, but to find out how we got to this point, we have to go back to the start of the extraordinary story of Lisa Smith. Catherine Fegan, where did Lisa Smith grow up and what do we know about her family life? Lisa Smith 
came from Dundalk in County Louth. She was one of four in her family. Her mother's Caroline and her father was Geordie. And they lived in a fairly working class estate in, in Dundalk, in the Mahevna Moor area of Dundalk. Her mother worked in a hospital and I think her father had a few odd jobs. She had a fairly normal upbringing by Irish standards, went to the local primary school, went on to secondary school, um, made her Holy Communion, her confirmation, um, all the normal kind of things you do as a young person in Ireland. Her father in, in court by a witness was described as a as a violent alcoholic. I think he had a, a drinking problem. So there were some issues there with her father. But locals who, who know her say that, you know, the family are very well known, that she had a fairly normal upbringing and, you know, a traditional sort of teenage existence, went to, to discos, enjoyed socialising and drinking. And Described uh, herself at one point as a party girl. Yeah, I think it actually came out in court. One of the witnesses that, that gave evidence, her friend Una McCartney, actually said that, you know, they had dabbled in cannabis at one point, you know, a bit of recreational drug taking, that she liked to party, all the kind of normal things that sort of young teenage girls do. So a very sort of regular kind of upbringing as such. But then when it came to looking for employment, she went for something much more structured and chose the Defence Forces. Yes, at 19, she entered the Defence Forces, apparently um, on the recommendation of her father. And she did, I think, four or five years as a soldier before entering the Air Corps. She was described as a very industrious, hard worker, really took to the regime of the Defence Forces and had quite a successful career. And at one point, she was on the staff that ferried the Taoiseach to and from Ireland official trips. She worked on the government jet government during jet. Bertie Hearn's time and he has described her as an engaging and kind person. She also worked alongside Mary McAleese on that. Yeah, there was those pictures that emerged actually of her um, greeting Bertie Hearn as he came off the government jet and she's in full uniform. Very sort of different appearance to what you maybe see in the later pictures of Lisa Smith, but very regular kind of um, hard-working member of, of the Defence Forces. And Robin Schiller, it was said in court that her time there, she was industrious, reliable. Did she ever hint at what was to follow during her time with the Defence Forces? Yeah, so during the trial, we got a little bit of a taste of, you know, where her mind was at and how her kind of uh, move into Islam was developing. So Pat Riley would have worked with her um, for a short period of time in the Air, uh, in the Air Corps and in Baldona particularly. And he gave evidence that one time in around 2011, I think there was a mission coming back from uh, Africa, bringing people back and uh, back into Baldonnell Airdrome. And he said he was on a 24-hour duty with Lisa Smith, which is typical of, you know, the shifts they do in the army. And he told the court that, you know, she was going on about anti-Western stuff, how she'd borrow his laptop while he was editing pictures and show him videos. What he said, uh, the Taliban doing movements and all this kind of stuff. So all this um, Islamic stuff, anti-Western stuff. And I think he also recalled that she described the Irish government as a, a shower bastard, I think, was one of the friends that stuck out. And so it kind of gave a bit of a glimpse of Lisa Smith's mindset at the time, how she was getting, I suppose, anti-Westernised in a way, had an anti-government view and very much was, you know, pulling towards Islam and even trying to, you know, saying to him, go home and read the Quran and trying to convince him, you know, of this lifestyle that she was slowly and surely falling into. So Catherine, we know that by 2011, Lisa was in the process of converting to Islam. 
But why? How did she get to the point where she knew she wanted to convert? Well, according to people who know her from the from Dundalk Mosque, um, she literally just showed up one day at the mosque and was met by some of the women from the mosque and said she was very, very committed to converting to Islam, um, that she wanted to be a Muslim. Um, this was her chosen faith. I say you come, you see the propaganda, the videos. Yani, you want the Islam, you want to come, you want to live in a Muslim country, in a Muslim environment, no music, no uh, smoking, no drinking, no prostitution, no anything like this, you know. And you want clean, clean life like this. And just, this, this is what you want. But sometimes it's not like this. But others who knew, who knew her said that this all sort of leads back to a local Muslim man who she was in a relationship with. The relationship didn't work out. He effectively dumped her, um, was just a fling to him, but a lot more to her, it seems. She was quite taken with him and some people say she was, you know, in love with him. And the relationship ended, he moved on and she got got it into her head, say people who know her, that if she converted, um, it was a way back to him. He attended this mosque, if she showed interest in the religion, that she could somehow maybe rekindle the relationship. And so how did people at the mosque react to her? Because it's not commonplace, let's be honest, for uh, an Irish woman working in the Irish Defence Forces, went to Catholic school, you know, pretty standard upbringing. Yeah, the women who met her kind of said, you know, this is a big commitment. It's a serious change, obviously. It's it's a religious change, but it affects all aspects of your life. And she was an Irish woman coming to do this, which was a big thing for them. They say, you know, it's it's you know, they give warnings to everyone, but particularly um, you know, with her, they kind of said, You need to think very carefully about this. And she wanted it all straight away. They said that she wanted it all in straight away. She really wouldn't listen to anyone who said, let's take it in stages, let's take it slowly, see how you get on, you know, come to a couple of prayer meetings and see how it suits you. And they said more or less overnight, she wanted the full transformation. She wanted to be in the full garb, fully committed. And they were a bit dubious about that um, and the reasons behind it, because some of them knew about the man in, in question. Yeah, and it even I think Carol Duffy said in court that, you know, what Catherine said, there was suspicions about her, they were dubious, that she kind of came out of nowhere, showed up and wanted to get full on into straight away. And, you know, Carol Duffy told the court that basically the women in the mosque thought she was a spy of some sort. And just for context, Carol Duffy is someone who said that she knew Lisa from when they were children and she was the woman who introduced Lisa to the mosque in Dundalk. She came into class once and the others didn't take well to her. The other women thought she was a plant. She talked about Islam, the more politicised end of it, more so what we should be, what we were wearing, doing, saying. More the harsh end of Islam. At the time, Al-Qaeda was quite common, so there was a lot of talk about jihad, suicide bombings. She talked about that thing, why they were doing it, justifying maybe why the bombings had to happen. In other words, we were attacked, so we're attacking back. There was nothing specific, just those topics were things that interested her. She would also mention the likes of wanting a husband who'd be a shaheed and how honourable that would be. She began talking to people online and became withdrawn. Lisa would say things like, we don't have to do this, do that. I just couldn't listen to her anymore. The contact was sporadic after that until it ended. It's not that I lost contact. I, I stopped. 
And Catherine, she actually gave an interview to the Irish Independent in 2011 where she talked about her reasons for wanting to convert and went into quite a bit of detail about finding herself at a stage in life where she wanted more, she wanted answers and basically life wasn't fulfilling her. She tried different religions and it wasn't wasn't working out for her. Yeah, it's interesting to look back on that interview now. It was 2011 with uh, Margaret Carher and, and it, yeah, she outlines this kind of um, reasoning behind her, her decision to convert to the Muslim faith her hopes of finding um, a, a Muslim husband um, and that at the time she had taken to wearing the headscarf but she was planning to wear the hijab and the, uh, in due course and that she said in that that she didn't have much grounding in the Catholic faith and she was looking for answers and somehow found them in, in, in Islam. She tried other kind of more spiritual offerings like Buddhism. It didn't work out for her. Basically everything, she tried fairies, angels, recce, all of it. And then she said that, you know, the pressure of life got to her and she wanted something else, something calmer, and she found she find this in the in the Muslim faith. And she described that she found it a very peaceful setup and having read the Quran, she said she knew straight away that this was the religion for for her. But it isn't normal and, and certainly there seems to be, from what you're saying, there was pushback among those who knew what a big commitment converting to Islam was. She wasn't welcomed with open arms exactly. No, and it's such a small community and a tight-knit community, um, particularly in Dodok in that mosque, and they all know each other. And they knew about this um, this man that you've been in the relationship with um, and they knew the relationship hadn't worked out. So there were a bit, people were talking and they kind of have a, had worked it out that her reasons for coming so fully to the religion um, maybe warranted a bit more uh, investigation. Now, she was doing everything that you, you would expect. She was reading the Quran 24 hours a day, apparently. And like I say, she'd taken to her in the full, the full dress and was telling them all she was fully committed, but they just didn't buy it. The women in the mosque just didn't buy it. And while that relationship with the first boyfriend who, who it seems, introduced her to some level of, of this religion, that didn't didn't rekindle. But she went on and started looking elsewhere. And many of the people you've spoken to feel that her motivation was largely driven by romance, perhaps, rather than religion. Yes, a lot of them sort of pointed to this. And they said that um, they found with Elisa all avenues tended to lead back to a man. And particularly with even her female friendships within the mosque. Um, if she befriended a woman, it was always they found you know, to get close to the husband so she could get close to the husband's friends to scout them out for potential husband material. Um, and it, it wasn't just, it wasn't just any type of hus- you know, Muslim husband that she wanted. She wanted a very particular brand. Um, she wanted someone who was very committed and quite extreme. Um, I think in the end she had four, maybe more husbands. And with each of them, you can see how, you know, her choice of, of partner, husband, becomes more extreme. And Carol Duffy said as much in uh, To the Special Criminal Court. She would also mention the likes of what in a husband who would be a Shaheed. When she met Lisa Smith, she made a point that she wanted to marry a Shaheed, which is essentially a martyr Islam. And how honourable that would be. And showed that, you know, even early on, Lisa Smith wanted to marry a man who would effectively die for an Islamic cause. And she did marry a man in the mosque in Dundalk, or certainly the union was blessed. 
How did that go down with the community there, with her family? How was that viewed, Catherine? Yeah, she married a man named Samir. He was he was from Drogheda, but he attended the Dundalk Mosque and she'd been introduced to him by one of the women in the mosque whose husband was friendly with him and she literally just decided this was going to be her husband. And they were, they were married in the mosque. There was a blessing, an Islamic blessing given. One person I talked to said that more or less, you know, within a week of marrying this man, she decided it was not working out. In the end, it lasted three months. She'd moved in with him and was complaining a lot and just decided he wasn't for her. They'd moved in together, like I said. She was still in the Defence Forces at that stage. And one of the women I spoke to said that the issue of her religion and her job was beginning to come to the fore, that her husband Samir used to drive her to work every day and she had the hairdress on. He'd drop her off and she would make quite a ceremony out of taking it off because she had to go into work. And he was of the opinion of, it's not a big deal. I'm fairly moderate. I don't mind if you don't wear it to work. And she didn't like that. She didn't like the fact that he wasn't with her on the same page when it came to, to wearing the headdress and wanted him to be stronger. And that was one of the reasons they said that she really decided, no, he's too weak, he's not for me. And Robin, so it's clear while all this was happening that Lisa Smith was on the road to becoming more and more radicalised all the time. Uh, absolutely, and Carol Duffy said as much in court that uh, around the time of that breakup or even a bit after. She began talking to people online and became withdrawn. She described Lisa Smith as being a lot more withdrawn from both her and society. She was living with Carol Duffy now, but she'd rarely ever speak to her. And if she did speak to her, she'd come out with all sorts of theories. Lisa would say things like, we don't have to do this. Do that. And she kind of said that she was more and more withdrawing herself onto the internet the whole time and basically disappeared as kind of down this rabbit hole online and became more and more radicalised in kind of late 2011. So Robin, after around a decade in the Defence Forces, Lisa Smith decides to quit the army. Was it because her commitment to the Muslim faith didn't fit with being a woman in the Defence Forces or was it that the Defence Forces didn't think that they had a place for her anymore? Uh, I think more so the former in fairness to the Defence Forces. Kind of in November 2011 we see Lisa Smith obviously come more devout to her fate and the requirements to her fate and her duty for the Defence Forces just didn't match anymore. They weren't uh, weren't going well together and she'd also put in a written request to be able to wear the hijab while she's on duty and this was allegedly uh, rejected by Defence Force where in the trial. So she put in for a discharge, she left the army and, you know, after a 10-year career, that's the last time we saw her with the, uh, the Irish army. And Catherine, even as this was happening, she was giving up her good, pensionable career. Her mother still believed and many of her friends and family still believed that this was all just a phase. Yeah, I think at this point she had decided that her role in all of this was to become a Muslim um, housewife. Um, she wanted to know all about um, Muslim cu cooking, um, the cleaning routine of the Muslim wife, how to be a dutiful wife to your husband. Uh, and the focus was, was, on, was on the kind of domestic side of her role. And at the same time, she's living with, with Carol Duffy still in, in Dundalk. And the relationship there is very broken down. Um, the brand of uh, Islam that Carol and her husband were offering 
uh, didn't suit Lisa anymore. So she was retreating more and more into her room till eventually she was in there all of the time, online 24-7, communicating with um, what would be described as hardline um, Islamists from all over the world um, to the point where, you know, she, she, she was completely taken in by all of this. And Robin, what sort of information was she getting or what sort of access to people in, I suppose, in a better position to understand the type of Islam that she was looking for? Who was she talking to? Well, the main channel of communication was a Facebook group called We Hear, We Obey. And in fairness, a lot of it was to do with kind of mainstream Islamic teachings. But there was also a lot of extreme propaganda shared in that. And as Catherine said, she spoke to people all over the world. Two Australians in particular who had been convicted of ISIS offences later on and an American preacher who had gone to feature very prominently in Lisa Smith's kind of story. And there was an outline given to the court that, you know, in one instance there was a video shared of a Jordanian pilot being burnt alive in a cage. It's a really famous video and would have been uh, publicised at the time. And, you know, Lisa Smith kind of responded to this saying, OK, now I understand why this is happening. And it shows kind of how she was becoming more radicalised and this kind of propaganda that ISIS is famous for was actually worked on her and she was getting sucked more and more down that rabbit hole. And around this time, she changes mosque as well because she had been in Dundalk, but Catherine, she moves to Dublin. Yeah, I think she had burned a lot of bridges bridges at this point in the Dundalk Mosque and that um, she'd been asked to attend the Halakas, the, the prayer readings with the women, and had decided that, you know, she didn't need that. She, she knew it all effectively. Like I said, I hadn't really taken to her and were very suspicious of her um, and the teachings there just didn't appeal to her. So she thought she'd move on, maybe try somewhere else, started to get the bus up and down um, from Dundalk to Dublin to the Klonsky Mosque and South Circular Road mosque and even there uh, the women there because it would have been the women she was dealing with were, were really suspicious of her and it's a small community and you know word was going back to the Dundalk mosque about her presence in Dublin and questions were being asked you know they were saying is this this Lisa Smith that we have in our mosque what she like? What are her motives here? You know, there's a lot of stuff she's talking about we're not necessarily comfortable with. Apparently she was encouraging all the women there to that their husbands should become martyrs for the religion and their attitude was, you know, we need our husbands. They're, they're, they're the breadwinners in the home. And they kind of had more sense than to be getting involved in the kind of activities, particularly, or particularly political end of Islam, that she tended to be drawn to and wanted to explore more. And as we know, she's determined to find a husband who meets her expectation. She marries again. Yeah, so in, in Dublin, she befriends um, a Muslim woman from Uzbekistan who married a man from Iraq. And uh, lo, lo and behold, Lisa Smith decides to marry a Muslim man. This man's friend, who's also from Iraq, he's a mechanic. Don't know much about him. Don't know his name. Um, but they travel to Turkey together on honeymoon. Um, and like her first husband, Samir, he didn't live up to Lisa's expectations. And they divorced after two weeks. So it was a very, very short-lived uh, union. Uh, so much so that even within the Muslim community, where like unions that are blessed with, within the religion would be known. This wasn't announced at all. Nobody knew about it. It happened on the QT as such. And uh, she married him, she divorced him, and she was quickly scouting around looking for her next husband. And on that process, Robin, you mentioned this American preacher. Why is he so key to the story? 
Well, essentially, this American preacher, um, John Georges was his given name, but he went by, you know, Cunha, um, Yaya Abaruni, went by a different nickname, uh, Yaya Abu Hassan. He was a Texan-born convert to Islam. Um, in 2006, he was under investigation by the FBI and would have been jailed for attempting to hack a pro-Israeli lobbying group. And he, you know, I think after the 9-11 terror attack, would have become a jihadist, would have radicalised, and he would have had a major influence online in you know, bringing Lisa Smith into his world and um, using his propaganda to persuade her to, I suppose, later come to Syria. And you know, he was also a well-respected scholar. He was educated. He knew the Quran inside out, they say. And you know, his, his level of knowledge within Islam was respected, but also he, was a, he would later become a chief uh, recruiter, essentially, and propagandist for IS. And apart from taking in his information and and subscribing to his brand of Islam, it was believed, or Lisa Smith believed, that she might actually become his second wife. He's really central to her story, I suppose, but she seems to have been really taken in um, and wooed by him. Um, some people say she was quite obsessed by him. Um, he really appealed to this kind of extremist view that she she was looking for. So he was telling her all the right things. But then there was a romantic sort of link of some sort and a promise of a marriage that she really believed was true. Whether or not it was is another thing. But in any case, when she, you know, connected with him online and they started communicating and there was a promise of a marriage, I think she saw him as the man that she had been look, looking for all along. But his actual wife wasn't on board with this idea and she was a British woman, interestingly. Yes, he had married um, a, a UK um, convert, Tanya Joya, and they had three kids together. Um, and um, he had he had done time in the States for hacking. Um, I'd spent three years in prison, gets out of prison after his probation. I think there's a lot of hate on him in the States, so he decides to take his wife and kids to, to, to Egypt to move away. And all along, he's online sort of communicating with various people all around the world. One of them is, is Lisa Smith. Lisa Smith hoped to become the second lady. That didn't happen, Robin, but she was... Now, officially, a year and a half after converting, on her way to being a female jihadist. She was, and that radicalisation process happened fairly quickly within a year and a half. By kind of 2013, we see John George and Tanya Joy convincing Lisa Smith to join them, first in Istanbul, and then going across the border into Syria. Now, this before, you know, the caliphate's announced. It's actually when the Syrian civil war is going on. And Tanya Joya, you know, she was the first lady of ISIS, but in the special criminal court, she comes across as a completely different character, this kind of glamorous lady who's left her jihadist background behind. And she tells the tale of how they, you know, snuck across the border, aided by traffickers, and how Lee Smith kind of enjoyed being there. You know, she was excited by it, got a bit of a buzz off this fighting going on. And she would say that Lisa Smith wanted to help the rebels fight and had a real interest in fighting. We stayed in a villa owned by a Syrian general, me, Lisa, John and the kids. There was no electricity, the windows were smashed with bullet holes, the furniture was nice for Syrian standards. I can remember seeing her, Lisa, in my head. There was excitement, even I was curious about the war. You could look out the window and there was fighting. She made it to where she was planning to go and she was happy. She had a crush on Ahmed, the guy who drove us to the villa. She was planning to die there, to be a martyr. Now, in fairness, in Lisa Smith's defence, they would have said that she was simply laughed at when she went to Syria the first time to fight, that, you know, you're a woman and you're placed in the kitchen. And, you know, Tanya Joy gave a real 
insight, one of the few insights we've actually had from somebody who's in that kind of life and how uh, Lisa Smith lived in that life and kind of relished it in certain ways. But that was a very short-lived adventure into Syria the first time around. Yes, from Syria then she goes to Tunisia and while she's there, uh, she meets a handsome Tunisian fighter um, called Ahmed. He had fought for Al-Qaeda. The two of them uh, decide to get married. And this becomes Lisa Smith's third marriage um, within the past year. And then she's on a plane again, Robin, back to Ireland. Yes, and it's a very short return to Ireland this time again, because in June 2014, we have the caliphate announced by Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. And Lisa Smith realises that this is her calling, this is where she wants to be in this Islamic state. And she begins making plans to return to Syria, but this time for real. I don't know what's happening out there, you know. <clears throat> for me, it was all a lie. I still don't know to this day what happened to the cities, what's, what's true. A lot of people, even myself, believe that the Islamic State started off with a great intention to have an Islamic State, but somewhere it got hijacked, you know. And in this hijacking, you know, it became communist and nationalised and this and that because it was all Iraqi run. That was Catherine Fegan and Robin Schiller, correspondents with the Irish Independent. I'm Kevin Doyle, and today's episode of the Indo-Daily was produced by Tabitha Monaghan, recorded by Gavin Hennessy, with sound design by John Smith. Archive clips were from BBC News, Primetime on RTE1, RTE News, ITV News, Virgin Media News, CNN, CBS News, and RTE Sport. Voiceover work was done by Deirdre Dunn and Sheena Pierce. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.